Just in defense of Rachel, who, who did a great job with announcements, she came up to me last week and says, I know you're doing your best articulating why and how we're doing it, but quite honestly, Eric, this is a potluck where people need to prepare the food and then bring it. And I said, well, of course I got it wrong. I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. I need you to do it. So, and then I told her this morning, you go ahead and you can throw me under the bus. She's like, I'm not going to do that to my pastor. I'm like, no, 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 that's my love language. Like, snark is love language, so thank you for loving me so well this morning in our announcements. If you're joining us, um, over the last couple of months, we have been slowly working through the book of Acts, and I love it. We're doing it for a couple of reasons. Number one, we're doing it because we want to look at what it looks like to be a church that's being used by God. But even more importantly, we've been looking at the book of Acts because in a lot of ways, it is the culmination of the Holy Spirit falling upon a people and watching the Spirit move. We call it the, 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 the acts of the apostles, but in reality, this is the acts of the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus continuing his ministry in and through the men and women who said, Jesus, help yourself to our lives. And when we saw on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell, it was like a match that hit gasoline and the church began to spread exponentially. But that spread was not without pushback. And ironically, the greatest pushback came from the very group of individuals who had been waiting for centuries for, the, for God's anointed Redeemer, His Messiah, to show up. It came from the religious establishment because they had seen Jesus. They'd interacted with Him. They'd had conversations with Him. And they said, you know what? He doesn't match our expectations. And so they rejected Him as their Messiah And they ultimately clamored for his crucifixion. And then the church, these men and women who had had walked with Jesus, seen the resurrected Lord with their own eyes, ate meals with him, interacted with him. They began to share the good news of great joy for everybody that Jesus was alive. And he really was the, the way, the truth, and the life. And, And they began to encounter great pushback from the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. Now, initially, we see that pushback happening from some of the leaders of the church, primarily Peter and John. They've had a lot of interactions um, with kind of pushback. And that's to be understandable because they were the vocal people within this early community. When there's a crowd of people, it would be natural for those who were kind of leading that bunch to stand up and say, hey, here's why this is happening. Here's what's going on. But the reality is the Holy Spirit didn't just fall upon 11 apostles and then 12 when you add in Matthias. It fell upon the entire group of men and women. And when others were added, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And all of them had been equipped and called to be God's witnesses to share how they had tasted and seen that he was good. And so as we are going to continue through the book of Acts for the next couple of of weeks And then especially beginning back in February when we jump back into the book of Acts after our kind of Christmas and and New Year focuses, we are going to see that God is going to use more and more people to be his ambassadors of hope. Today we're going to focus on a guy named Stephen. And we were introduced to Stephen last week. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. That's where we're going to start this morning. Uh, last week, we were introduced to this, this person, Stephen. He's one of seven individuals in the early church that were identified and called to be deacons of the church. And a deacon simply means a servant, somebody who serves other people, who does an, a very important role 
within the community of believers. And the reason that these deacons were called is because there was a breakdown in communication. There were tangible needs that were not being addressed. Specifically for the early church, it was that there were Greek-speaking widows and orphans who were not being as cared for as the Hebrew or or uh, Aramaic-speaking orphans and widows. And there were people within the Greek community of this kind of new kind of community come together. They're saying, hey, we're forgetting like half of our people because we're focused over on the Hebrew or Aramaic speaking uh, widows and orphans. And so the, the, the church leaders go, yeah, you know what? There's a lot of things that fall through the cracks. I make mistakes all the time. We need to identify a few people who will really take that on. Like I identified Kilby and Rachel and said, guys, I really want to have a, a Thanksgiving family dinner with our family. But the reality is I, I don't have the administrative gifting to pull that off. And so they've said, we'll step up. And they chose Stephen and six others to do that. Now, uh, Stephen's name is Greek which means that he was probably Greek himself, or at the very least, he spoke Greek, which is kind of important when it comes to ministering to a people group, because that would be like us saying, hey, we really want to minister to the the Spanish-speaking people within our community. Chances are the person that we're going to tap and say, we need you to lead in our care, will be somebody who at least speaks the language, at the very least, if not even more, somebody who is Hispanic themselves to be able to interact with people where there's very little degree of separation. And so that's how Stephen, that's one of the reasons why Stephen in this group of individuals was chosen, but it's not the only reason. In fact, in verse 5 of, of Acts chapter 6, we read that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't just that he spoke Greek and could kind of identify with or interact with this demographic that he was being asked to care for. They had also watched Stephen's life. They knew the kind of man that he was. They saw the way that he, the values that undergirded his entire life. And they say, you're the kind of guy that we want to represent the church in your care of other people. And so Stephen began to do this. And now we're going to pick up the story in verse 8 of Acts chapter 6. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs amongst the people. So it wasn't just the apostles that the Holy Spirit is using to do signs and wonders and miracles and things like that. However, opposition arose from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it's called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. I wish I had a map to show you this, but just here you have Jerusalem, and then here's the Mediterranean Sea out here. Down below and to the west is Egypt, and that's where those first two places are. That they, so cities, they're, they're, there's people that are coming from there, as well as Cilicia, which is the region up here, and Asia up here. So you have people who have been born into Greek-speaking areas, and were born into slavery, or their families had been enslaved there, and when they were freed from their slavery, they chose to move back to Jerusalem. 
back to Israel to be with the people that they most closely identified with. So although they had been raised in Greek-speaking Hellenized regions, they identified themselves as Jews. And they become vocal opponents of Stephen's suggestion that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Because here's the thing, Stephen wasn't just feeding people, although he was absolutely doing that. As he fed them, as he came alongside widows and helped perhaps make sure that their houses weren't leaking or came alongside orphans and made sure that they got connected into a family, as he was doing that, he also had the opportunity to share the good news of great joy that he had discovered. He could share his story with them. And as he's doing that, He's saying Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And now all of a sudden you have this this synagogue of freed men and women who may have been born in Greek-speaking areas but identified themselves as Jews. And they said, wait a minute, we disagree with you that Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, is somehow the Messiah. We were anticipating a conquering hero. He was certainly not that. Because Rome Rome has still got its boots on our neck. So he obviously wasn't the Messiah we were anticipating. Verse 10. They could not, this, this group, uh, this, this opposition from the synagogue of free men, could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave to Stephen as he spoke. So, because they cannot shut him up through debate, they decide, all right, well, let's just take this to the, the elders of our people. Let's, let's get the law involved to shut Stephen up. So they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin is the Jewish ruling council. They were the supreme court of the Jewish law. These are the power brokers in Jerusalem. They were the same ones who basically tried and convicted and declared that Jesus needed to die even though it was Rome who ultimately crucified him. They were the ones who say he needs to be killed. And they bring him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place. They're talking about the temple. And against the law. Of Moses, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this temple and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So their their accusations are twofold. There are two major accusations. The first one is speaking against the temple. He's speaking out against it. The second one is speaking out against Moses, or at least their traditional ways of understanding the law of Moses. And let's be honest here. Jesus himself actually did speak against both of those things. Because Jesus made the point. I mean, first off, he said, if you tear down this temple, I'll raise it up again in three days. He was talking about his body, but they they took that literally. But he also pointed to the temple and said, at some point, not a single one of these stones will remain standing on another. Because it's not about the place. Jesus' point was always... The person to your right and to your left is far more sacred than any plot of ground. And then the second thing that Jesus said was that you have completely and utterly missed the heart of the law. You think that you are following the law. All you've done is grab hold of the letter of the law. You've missed the heart of God in the midst of it. And he spent so much of his time 
reminding people of what the heart was. It's not about just murder. If you hold on to anger and bitterness in your heart, you're already a murderer in your heart. It's not just about adultery. If you even hold on to lustful thoughts in your mind, you have committed adultery. And he said, guys, your so-called law is simply, you know, that's not from God. That's not his heart. That's just rules taught by man. You've missed the heart. And so certainly Jesus spoke out against it. And my guess is, is that Stephen was talking to them. He referenced those things. Well, they lean into those things and they bring accusations against Stephen. They drag him before the Sanhedrin and they say, this man is speaking against the temple and he's speaking against Moses. Now the very men who had declared that Jesus deserved to die are sitting in judgment upon Stephen. And I want us to recognize the gravity of the accusations brought against him. Because the reality is that although Rome was still over Jerusalem, they were still over Judea, which meant that in most cases the Sanhedrin did not have the right to convict somebody and to execute them. In this one area of the temple, they did. Can we, can we throw the quote up here? So uh, basically this, this bolded part here. Since Judea was under Roman occupation, capital punishment was only allowed by decree of the Roman governor except for offenses in word or deed against the sanctity of the temple. If somebody spoke out against the temple, if somebody desecrated the temple in any way, in those situations, the Sanhedrin was allowed to execute offenders. So suddenly, the accusation brought against Stephen carries weight. It's got teeth because the guys standing in front of him in judgment have the ability to kill him for what he's being accused of. So how on earth is Stephen going to respond? Go ahead and look at verse, or chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? What, what do you have to say for yourself, dude? And to this he replied, brothers and fathers, because remember the Sanhedrin was composed entirely of men. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. And over the next 50 verses, 50, it probably might have taken him 20 minutes to go through his defense, he tells the story of Israel. He basically follows from Abraham to Moses and the, the bringing him out of slavery and into the promised land after some wandering around and to where the temple is. He, he takes them on this long, seemingly convoluted journey. And I'm left scratching my head when I read it. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read it this morning simply because we will spend all of our time just reading it and we'll get lost. But I encourage you to read it on your own, his defense, which is basically the rest, almost the rest of chapter 7. He gives a defense. I am simply going to help us to recognize what he's doing because it is not nearly as off-topic as it originally seemed when I first read it. I go, what are you, what are you doing? Why are, you, why are they asking you to give a defense and instead of saying, hey, that's not what I said or that's not what I meant, instead you say, let me tell you, you the story of Israel. What? The reality is Stephen is very much addressing both of the accusations against him and Rather than being a defense of himself 
It is far more offensive, meaning he is going on the attack. And what he is going to show is that, guys, you're accusing me of things that you yourselves are guilty of. You have missed the heart of God. You have misunderstood the purpose of the temple. You have misunderstood the heart of God through Moses. And so it is you, not I, who are guilty. And remember those, those two accusations. The first one had to do with the temple. He is desecrating the temple. He is speaking against it. And so he basically makes the point that his, his first theme, the first focus of his defense is that God is not uh, kind of forced to stay in one place. God isn't confined to the temple. And he points out several things here. Number one, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. We just read about that. All right, That's not Jerusalem. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush in the wilderness of Sinai. Again, not the temple. He rescued the nation of Israel in Egypt, worked powerfully there. And then he was with them regularly as they journeyed through the wilderness, meeting with them in the temple, leading them in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. You think that God is contained in a building? But look at all the ways through our own history that he has shown up in other places. And then he finishes with this. In verse 48, he finishes that thread of thinking. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And then he quotes Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. He says, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? His point is this, you guys are trying zealously to guard the sanctity of the temple as if that's where you meet God. (laughs) But you don't need to be in the temple to meet him. I remember when we were in Israel earlier this year, and they took us to the Western Wall, which is at this point the holiest place in all of Judaism because it's the closest to the Holy of Holies that they're able to get even though not one stone of the original temple has actually been left upon itself, which is kind of a fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. And as we were walking through this underground tunnel, I remember our guide saying, this is why it's so holy, because this is the closest that they can currently get, Jews can currently get to the Holy of Holies, where God's Spirit resides. And I was left going, wait a minute, God's Spirit resides here. We are the temples, not some building, not some place. And so every single place that a man, woman, or child who has, has accepted Jesus as their Savior and Lord goes, that is the holy of holies. So that's the first theme, is that God is not forced or confined to a single place. His second theme addresses their accusation that he has been speaking against Moses, and this is his accusation. Not I, but all of Israel has regularly made a point of disrespecting and overlooking Moses. And so he makes a a couple of things. Israel, uh, Israel, remember when, when Moses is trying to help intercede between two Israelis that are fighting their Jews in in, uh, slavery in Egypt? He had just killed one of the Egyptian slave taskmasters who had been beating another Israeli slave, and he now tries to intercede. And they go, who made you the, the, the ruler and judge over us? And what Stephen will go on to say is, uh, God did. 
But, you know, that's beside the point. The Israeli slaves basically disregarded him. We also see as they were walking through the wilderness in, in, uh, out of Egypt and towards the promised land that they were constantly questioning Moses' leadership, constantly grumbling, why have you brought us out of slavery where we got to sit in comfort around pots of meat? Did God just want to bring us out here to die? Moses, have you just brought us out here to starve and to, you know... What's going on? So they're constantly grumbling against him, he points out. And then when Moses took too long on Mount Sinai, where God was covenanting with his people, it took him about 40 days, they kind of get together and go, I know what we'll do. We don't know what happened to Moses, so let's go take all our gold jewelry and we'll, we'll melt it down and we'll cast ourselves a little bovine, this, this golden calf. We will make this new God and we'll say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. As for Moses, we don't know what happened to him, right? So, Israel, you, you accuse me of disrespecting Moses. You have a long history of it. And then, and then, in verse 51, <laughs> Stephen decides to close with these very comforting, very non-offensive words. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. I know that sounds strange, but that would have been like a ooh, you know, back then. It simply means you don't get it. You still don't think the way that God thinks. You're still looking at this from human eyes and with human hearts. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah. They killed him. And guess what? You murdered the righteous one when he came. You have betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. Mic drop. Those are fighting words. He is not being gentle. He is not being defensive. He is not being quiet. He is being ridiculously bold. And you've got to believe that it, his words were offensive because he was attacking the very judges that were sitting in judgment upon him in that moment. So it shouldn't come as a surprise when we read verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen doesn't back down. He doesn't recognize the way that the air in the room has suddenly gotten charged and they are, they're staring daggers at him. Instead, he leans in because in that moment, the Holy Spirit gives Stephen a vision of the throne room in heaven. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God in a position of divine affirmation that he truly is who he claimed to be and that he is now in a position of authority over the whole earth. And not only does Stephen see that, but he has the audacity to articulate what he sees. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices as if hearing any more of his words would further poison, as if his words themselves were like a virus and if it even got into their ears, it could infect them. So they cover their ears, yell at the top of their voices so it'll drown out anything else. He says, they grab him and they drag him outside of Jerusalem, pick up stones and begin to hurl him at him and kill him. 
And what I love, I don't love this part, but what I love about Stephen's response is he does not beg for mercy. He doesn't back down from what he said. I didn't mean it. I was joking, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Forgive me grace. Give me grace. No. He embraces. He embraces what, what God has called him to do. I, I, I truly, when, when I look at this, I go, what on earth am I supposed to do with this? Well, the first thing is Stephen does not fear death. It's obvious. He truly has said, God, here I am. Help yourself to my life. Not only that, but he doesn't begin to curse the men who are throwing stones at him. Instead, he begins to bless them. He, he, he almost reflects the heart of what Jesus said when he was hanging on the cross, looking out at the men and women who were jeering at him, the, the, the soldiers that had put him there, the, the Sanhedrin who had clamored for his crucifixion. When he says this in verse 60, Stephen fell to his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which is a euphemism for he died. Now, as I read Stephen's death, and we're going to go in a little bit deeper into that particular part of the story next week, and we're going to talk about the aftermath of what happened after this, but here's the thing that really stands out to me. Stephen did not try to preserve his life. He literally took his life and said, God, I'm an offering. Help yourself to me. God created an opportunity for him to speak to the most powerful men in the Jewish religion in that day, and he didn't back down. He didn't shrink from it. And then in many ways, I think he embodied the heart of Revelation 12, verse 11, which talks about the martyrs that will give their lives for their faith. And this is, can we throw Revelation 12 up there for a second? This, this is what he embodied. They triumphed over the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They triumphed over the enemy who would love to shut you up. Don't keep talking in this name. Don't keep affirming him. You can help other people, but do not speak the name of Jesus. But they triumphed over the enemy with, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Stephen did not shrink from death because he trusted God. He loved God more than he feared death itself. He feared God more than he feared the men who were picking up stones to kill him. But I got to ask, why on earth when you are brought before the leaders of the people, why on earth, Stephen, when you are asked to give a defense, when you are being falsely accused of things that are not true of you, why on earth would you spend 20 minutes telling them a story of Israel's history? They know it. So why was that? I mean, I, I, I'll be honest with you. If I were brought before a group of people who held my life in their hands, I would not be telling a story. Or at least I wouldn't be telling the history of America, right? I wouldn't even tell the history of Lighthouse Community Church. I would be like, well, this is what I meant. And I would be extremely respectful. I would not try to make them upset at all. I would probably be a little bit, you know, kind of like kowtowing just a little bit. And that's totally not his attitude. So why on earth this approach? Well, the reason he chose to tell them the, the history, the story of Israel, is because of his audience. He is talking to the leaders of Israel. And keep in mind, 
that the Jewish mind is a very different mind than ours. The Jewish mind, they view themselves as part of a much larger whole. They are a communal community. They identify themselves not as individuals, but as part of a much larger whole. And so what Stephen is doing is he is telling them a portion of their story. And as he tells them their story, he is pointing out the hypocrisy and the irony of what he's being accused of. You're telling me that I'm disrespecting the temple? Guys, do you realize how demeaning you are to the creator and sustainer of the universe when you try to suggest that he is contained in a little plot of land? Do you realize how ridiculous that is? You want to accuse me of disrespecting Moses and trying to change your tradition? Guys, you've missed the heart of God. And you have a long history of disregarding Moses. In fact, you killed the very prophets that pointed to the Messiah, and you guys killed the Messiah. You want to accuse me of disrespecting God? Look at yourself. So he tells them their story, and in telling their story, he reminds them of the hypocrisy. Now, they don't, they're not able to hear it, because all they hear is that he's attacking me and their defenses go up. But here's the point that I really feel like is important for us to remember this morning. Stories are powerful. They are how we make sense of the world. And stories can cut through defenses in ways that that simply telling facts cannot. You try to teach a kid something or you tell them a story, which one's going to be more powerful? I think there's a reason why Jesus chose to teach in parables. Because he could take heady thoughts and he could package them in such a way that you go, oh yeah, I I understand a sheep that gets lost and a shepherd who goes and searches for it. Well, that's what God is like. Oh, I understand a prodigal child. Ooh, he told his dad he wished he was dead so he could have his stuff. That's harsh. He went and wasted it all. Yeah, that kid deserves to be punished. He he got what he got, you know, he, he deserved. Wait a minute, the father's running to him and wrapping his arms around him and giving him grace? That's audacious. Yeah, and that's the way God loves you right? That's the heart of it, is that a story can communicate things in such a way that simply kind of teaching facts cannot. But here's the thing. We live in a culture that doesn't have a shared story, because in the West, particularly in America, we are a radically individualistic society. We're not like the Jewish culture that identifies them as part of a much larger whole, At our core, we all tend to look at ourselves as individuals with our own individual story. And if we do point back to a a longer story besides just kind of our own life, it's most often to kind of point out, these are the humble beginnings I came from and look how I've overcome those things, right? And so if we hope to communicate, we need to begin by communicating our story, because this is what I've realized. We used to, as a culture, if you wanted to convince somebody to give their hearts to Jesus Christ, we tried to reason them into the kingdom of heaven. And so if you wanted to be somebody who could evangelize people, you needed to go to school to get a training in apologetics. You ever heard that term? Most of us who are, you know, over 40 years old have heard that term, although I think that many of our young kids may not have ever heard that term before. Apologetics is simply the ability to 
defend your faith. You go to school to get the tools to, here's a way of thinking, a way of arguing to build a cohesive case for why Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and did what he claimed to do. And here are verses from the Bible that support that. And so you can build almost this, this tight you know, foundation for your faith claim, and you can somehow convince somebody by simply giving them facts that they should believe it. But we live in a culture today, this postmodern culture we live in, people are absolutely resistant to any sort of worldview that challenges their own freedoms. They're dead set against it, and they often don't even care what verses you have. They're like, I don't even think the Bible is you know, has any bearing whatsoever on my life because it's not the good book. It's the bad book. Look at all of the damage that's been done in the name of Jesus because of the Bible, right? And so they reject our arguments, but you know what they cannot reject? Your story. They can't reject your experiences. They may not necessarily identify with your story or your experiences, but they cannot reject it. And so rather than trying to preach theology, perhaps a better approach would be to simply share your story. Or as, as Bill pointed out a couple weeks ago as we were working through chapter 5, remember when God took Peter and John out of prison? And what did he tell them to do? Go tell the people all about this new life. Go tell them your story. Go tell them your experiences because you have tasted and seen the power you have tasted and seen the freedom. You've tasted and seen the goodness of my son Jesus. Now go and tell people what you have tasted and seen. But why on earth would we ever think that people want to listen to our story, right? Because again, we live in a culture that is adamantly opposed to anybody who claims to have experienced something or, or, or is ridiculously resistant to any sort of worldview that challenges their worldview. Far too often when I watch on social media somebody declaring something to be truth in their own life, people will respond like the Sanhedrin does. Ha, la, 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 I'm not listening! Or you're such a bigot! Or whatever it is, and they reject it. Sorry, I know that was loud. My bad. My bad. Turn the hearing aids down. And they reject it. So how can we get to the point where people will be willing to listen to our stories? It begins by being willing to listen to theirs. Years ago, I was talking to a pastor who is in the process of planting a church in Hollywood of all places. Could you imagine more fertile soil than Hollywood or perhaps more hardened ground, more ground that is more resistant to the gospel message than Hollywood? Oh, maybe. <laughs> this is what he said. He said, listen, we used to try to reason people into the kingdom of God. We used to try to come up with all of the arguments that we could make and all of the verses, but the reality is people don't care about our arguments and they reject the verses that we throw at them. So we've changed up the way that we approach them. It's not that we don't want to convince them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not that we don't believe that Jesus loves them and is good news for their life. We've just changed our approach. Now we seek to listen people into the kingdom of God. 
And what he meant by that is we don't try to, to lead with this is what I believe and this is why I believe it and these are all of the verses that back it up. Instead, we seek to understand their story first. And then and only after that do we begin to share our own story and show how they intersect. And I, I, I've taken that approach and adopted it in my own life. When I interact with people, maybe it's on a plane ride, and, and God kind of sovereignly plants somebody next to me. There are times, I will confess, there are times where I'm really happy if the seat next to me is empty because I get to like spread out. But when God sovereignly plants somebody next to me, I often just go, okay, God, use me. And the first question I will ask of that person is, tell me your story. Tell me your, what part of my story. I don't know. You tell me. Because everybody, everybody can kind of figure out for themselves the part that is most pertinent, what they want to share. Or when I encounter somebody on Rochester Street where I live, just down the street, when I'm walking my dog and I meet one of our neighbors and I pause because I'm busy. I'm always going someplace. But one of the things that God has been reminding me of is be interruptible, be available. So when I pause and I start getting to know them, or maybe I'm down at Harper Park here while Sadie's running around and I just strike up a conversation uh, with somebody that's there with their dog, I'll often lead with, just tell me your story. Well, what part? Whatever part you want. And as they begin to share their story, I begin to learn not only kind of where they're from, but I get to learn their hopes and their hurts. Oftentimes, I'll begin to hear the ways that things have happened in their life that actually have formed impediments between them and Jesus. And as I hear their story... I am not only earning the right to share my story, but I'm beginning to discern what part of my story intersects theirs. Because of the truth of the matter is there's a whole stinking lot of history that Stephen could have referenced in his defense. But he had a point to what points he pulled out. And in the same way, there's a whole lot of history and a whole lot of story that we can share from ourselves. But as you get to know the people you're speaking to, not only do you get to understand their language so you can speak in a language they understand, but you begin to understand what their hurts and their hopes are. And so you can begin to say, what part of my story intersects with theirs? Because I have tasted and seen that Jesus Christ is good. How can I begin to help them understand that he is good news for them as well? So this week, my encouragement, I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to respond to a God who uses imperfect vessels like us to pour out his perfect love. It's a big challenge, and I know a lot of us don't really want to. But the truth of the matter is you don't have to go to seminary to be able to share your story. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to have memorized the Bible to be able to listen to someone's story and then trust the Holy Spirit to lead you as you share part of yours. You don't have to be an expert on the law to love someone and to listen to them. So this week, may we be a people who listen before we speak. And may we be a people who allow God to use us has agents, ambassadors of the good news in the spheres of influence that he has sovereignly planted us in, wherever he leads you, whether it's a work trip, whether it's at school, whether it's just in your neighborhood where you're taking your dog for a walk. May you be a person, may we be a people who listen people into the kingdom of God. Father God, 
thank you for using imperfect people like us. Thank you for the ways that you love us desperately. Thank you for the ways that you have gone out of your way to redeem us. And even in our imperfection, because my goodness, we're aware of how imperfect we are. May we be a people who have the eyes to see or at least to be able to recognize opportunities that you invite us into. And may you show us the hearts of the men and women that we interact with as we listen to their stories. We don't want to be offensive people, but we certainly don't want to back down from the enemy and just abdicate this world to him. You have called us to be agents of hope in a dark world, ambassadors of grace that lead with the, the, the overwhelming language of love. May they know us by the way we love and the way that we listen. And God, would you even help us to identify whose stories we need to hear? There's a lot of people that we think we know, but we really don't know them because we've never taken the time to listen to their story. So would you set up some divine appointments for us this week? And would you give us the boldness to invite somebody to share their story? Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together.